Oh, Johnny Jones, he's funny. You know what, we're gonna have a lot of fun with this series, and hey, if you're on the keto diet, it works for me too, so uh, don't get all offended, all right? But you know, the thing is, there's a lot of fake news around today, but the most important news that we need to know is what the Bible says about things, and this series actually is gonna be one of the most important series that we've ever done because we're gonna be talking about the, really the, the main things, the, the, the most important parts of what the Bible says. And you know, there's a lot of fake news and even what I'm talking about today, really eternal destinies hang in the balance uh, of understanding this. So I want you to pull out your sermon notes with me, if you would, and I want us to look at what our fake news is for today. Here's the fake news, are you ready? I will earn my way to heaven by my good deeds. That's the fake news. I will earn my way to heaven by my good deeds. Now I would say that the vast majority of Americans, in fact, I would say by far the vast majority of people in the world today believe that that is accurate. In fact, I, I want you to look at a couple of eminent figures that you see. Uh, this is Michael Bloomberg. He's the, he was the former mayor of New York. Let me share with you what he shared with a prominent media outlet. I have earned my place in heaven. I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. Michael Bloomberg told the New York Times, I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Bloomberg asserts that he would easily get into heaven because of his good deeds. He outlines his work regarding gun safety, obesity, smoking, cessation, as reasons why God would allow him into heaven. And what about this guy, the Oracle of Omaha, right? Warren Buffett. He feels the same way. The Denver Post quoted billionaire Warren Buffett saying there's more than one way to get to heaven, but this is a great way. He made his quote shortly after giving away several billion dollars to charity. And I guess a lot of Americans would say, well, if you give away several billion, you know, you're probably in pretty good shape. But what does the Bible say? Let's go all the way back to the book of Isaiah, and let me just read you what the prophet says. It says, God, when you did amazing wonders, we didn't expect. You came down and mountains shuddered at your presence. Those, these amazing things had never been heard of before. You did things never dreamed of. No one perceived your greatness. No eye has ever seen a God like you who intervenes for those who wait and long for you. We have all become contaminated with sin and you see our self-righteousness as nothing better than a minstrel rag. We are all like fallen leaves and our sins sweep us away like the wind. Now some of the older versions, like the King James Version, they were a little more PC when it came to saying what our good works are like. They said like filthy rags, but this translation is the most accurate out there. Our righteous acts, says the prophet Isaiah, are as repugnant to God as soiled feminine hygiene products. Is that, that's, 
That, you know, some people think the Bible's kind of this old stuffy, but it, sometimes it just cuts right down to, you know, right where we are, right where we live. Martin Luther said the most damnable and pernicious heresy that has ever plagued the mind of man is that somehow he can make himself good enough to deserve to live forever with an all-holy God. It's like this, you stand before God one day and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? And you've kind of like Santa Claus got this big sack on your back and, and, and whether you're Warren Buffett or Michael Bloomberg and say, well, because of all these things, I've got in my sack all these good things and then you dump them out and they're like used tampons is what the Bible says. It's hard to even stomach. And God's gonna go like, that's just repugnant to me. I, I don't understand why you would even say that. See, we don't understand the glory of God. We don't understand the holiness of God. And when we stand in front of him, we're gonna know without a doubt that nothing measures up to who he is, to what he is. In fact, Paul in the book of Romans says this, you see, all have sinned. And that word sin there, hamartano in the original language, the Greek, it's in the aorist tense. It means something that happened in the distant past, but it's continuing on to now, to this very moment. So you've all sinned from Adam and Eve all the way through to you and to me. And all their futile attempts to reach God, and there's an interesting word, futile attempts, hustero, to be in want of, to lack, to fall short, to not finish. And it's in the present tense, to continually be falling short, to lack the necessary qualifications for. You see, all have sinned and all their futile attempts to reach God in his glory fail. That's the word. That's the scripture. All have sinned and every attempt that we make to reach him is a futile attempt and it's going to fail. That word glory, doxa in the, in, in the Greek, it, it's a kingly majesty which belongs to God as supreme ruler. Leon Morris, a Bible scholar, said this, the linking of God's glory with man's sin is intriguing. It would seem that God intended people to share in his glory. But sin cut Adam off from all of that and sin cuts off his descendants still. You know, if you tell the average law-abiding, hardworking, civic-minded, you know, uh, 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 American that he needs Jesus because he's a sinner, He'll have a dozen arguments about, you know, how to show he's not that really all that bad. He'll point to his honesty, to his civic duties, how he's got clothed and educated children, right? His charitable contributions like Warren Buffett. But what's the problem? See, the problem here is that God is missing from the equation. The most important issue in the universe is left out, namely, the glory of God. In fact, the Bible says that everything was created for the glory of God. And 
even mankind was created to reflect the glory of God. We were made in his image. We were made like him. We're not gods, but we were made in the image of God to reflect his glory. And it's our duty as his creatures to live for his glory by loving and trusting and thanking and obeying him. But what have we done? Instead of glorifying God by loving him, we've dishonored him through neglect, by loving other things more. Instead of glorifying God by trusting him, we've dishonored him by trying to find security and hope in ourselves, in our families, in our money, in our technology, in our weapons, not in God. Instead of glorifying God by being thankful to him for life and breath and everything, we've dishonored him by ignoring his generosity and by treating life as a right and happiness as something we deserve. I've heard it over and over. I deserve to be happy. Instead of glorifying God by obeying him, we've dishonored him by disregarding or rejecting his counsel on really just about everything, whether it's sexuality or finances or how we do our job or our attitudes or our politics, basically almost everything in life. What does it mean to fall short of the glory of God? It means that none of us have trusted God the way we should. None of us have obeyed him the way we should. We've trusted ourselves. We thought we knew a better way. You see, a, a, a crime is, is blameworthy in, in the fact of how important the being or entity that it affects is. And, and let me give you an example. Mosquito lights on your arm and you slap it. Does anybody go, you're going to prison for life. You just killed that mosquito, right? No, because it's just a little mosquito. I mean, it's a mosquito. It needs to be slapped, right? And uh, it might not be a little mosquito in Houston. It might, you know, be one of those big old hummingbird looking things. But, but it's not a big deal. Now, but if you kill a dog in the same way, well, that you could get into big trouble because the dog is valuable, right? And, and if you assault a person, even more so. Well, I want you to think about the most infinite, most holy, most supreme, most honorable most important being in the universe, God. When we assault God in his glory, it's a, a crime that's infinitely blameworthy because he's infinitely worthy. And the Bible says, now who's done this? All, everyone. That, that little word in the original language, all, it's so inclusive. It doesn't leave anybody out. He looks across all here today. He looks across all in America. He looks at all of you listening online and he's saying all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, if there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them, that would be pretty easy. But the line dividing good and evil cuts to the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? You see, we don't understand the glory of God. We don't understand how amazing this being is. And even 
when we stand before him. I, I read this week about a man that said he had a, a small white Highland Terrier and he loved that dog and he would groom that dog and he, he would brush that dog and he would shampoo and bathe that dog and he even powdered the dog, you know? I mean, this dog, he just loved it. He just, it was a spotless white Highland Terrier. He said one day, it was crazy outside. It just snowed in the place where he lived. God just blanketed the earth with just white and it was white everywhere. It was like two feet of just pure fallen snow. And he said he looked out his window and he saw this scraggly, drab looking dog walking across the snow and he goes, well, and then he realized it's, it was his Highland Terrier. And that dog, he said, that dog was as clean as it's ever been. But compared to that new fallen snow, it looked drab. It looked unclean. And that's kind of the picture here of what it says. When we understand, when we stand in the presence of God, everybody's going to realize that. So all these people that come with their good works to try to get to heaven, I mean, it's going to look like nothing. It's going to look like filthy rags in the presence of this God that we have had a hard time comprehending. But there's some good news, and I want you to write this down. Are you ready? The gospel truth. Gospel actually means good news. Did you know that? So when we talk about the gospel, good news. Eternal life is a person. Eternal life is a person. In fact, listen to how John, who walked with Jesus, those years on earth, listen to how he said it. Those who believe in the Son of God have the living testimony in their hearts. Those who don't believe have made God out to be a liar. That's pretty strong, isn't it? But basically, he's saying, when Warren Buffett, when, when you say there are many good ways to God, and this is one of them, you just kind of slapped God in the face and said, you're a liar. Because God says, I've created a way, I've made a way, this is the way. I love you so much that I tore my heart out, put it on a cross, and there was a reason for that so that you could come to me. There's only this way. They made God out to be a liar by not believing the testimony God has confirmed about his son. This is the true testimony that God has given us eternal life. He's given us eternal life and this life has its source in his son whoever has the son has eternal life whoever does not have the son does not possess eternal life I've written this letter to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you will be assured and know without a doubt that you have eternal life the great Dutch artist Rembrandt has a famous painting of the crucifixion and, and at first, your attention is drawn to the Christ on the, on the cross, the dying Savior. And then you notice the crowd gathered around and all of their different facial expressions and reactions. But if you look closely, the far edge of the painting, there's a lone figure almost in the shadows. And if you knew what Rembrandt looked like and you looked closely at that figure, you would see that it's a self-portrait of Rembrandt himself at the cross. The great artist realized that his sins had helped nail Jesus to the cross. And so he painted himself into the picture. And the truth is, so should we, all of us. 
Let me just read you the story of Barb Duncan. I, I, I read it this week and how she came to Christ. This is her story told in her words. Just listen. Into a little Roman Catholic church, my parents brought me, their firstborn, to the Lord, believing as the priest immersed me in the tub of water and anointed me with oil that I was given the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. At a young age, the Lord gave me a great desire for all things religious. When I was ready for high school, I begged my parents to send me to Catholic school. That was the first time that ever happened, probably, by the way, right? Then I joined a convent to be a nun. I took vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience to the holy rule with its 512 precepts. My goal was to become holy. I would obtain forgiveness and grace. I would merit rewards in heaven through the church, the sacraments, through her penances and prayers and ceremonies. Two things happened to me during this time. I became aware of an unspeakable gap between me and a holy God that I couldn't even describe to Father Confessor. The harder I tried to live for God, the more distant he seemed. Second, I picked up a Bible and there were verses that bothered me. Things like, don't take vows. Let your speech be simple. Saying yes when you mean yes and no when you mean no. When Christ spoke of the hypocrites who argued about the tassels of their garments while inwardly they were like dead men, I became utterly convinced that I was like the hypocrites. I began to challenge my superiors when I felt that the law of love contradicted our religious law. I felt that if there was a hell, it was for hypocrites. Finally, after seven years, I left the convent. I had no belongings, no direction, no experience. I was working and studying when I met Wally. I couldn't believe it. Here was a man who loved the Lord as much as I. Soon, we had fallen in love and were married. One day, we went to a prayer meeting and met a man whom we'd invited to dinner. And during our conversation that night, he asked me if I was saved. That was kind of offensive. I, I, I didn't know what to say. How could I say yes? How could I say no? Wally came to my defense. Barb loves the Lord and was a nun, Tom. Tom persisted, giving me the salvation scriptures from Roman. One Romans. One verse in Romans struck me especially hard, the one we read earlier. The next day, I opened my Bible and I read all of Romans. At that moment, it was just my eyes were opened. I saw the truth at last. I was a sinner, yet Christ had died for me. All my striving to earn my way to him amounted to nothing in God's eyes, only trusting and allowing Jesus to be my everything could save me. I was meeting with a new friend this last week and really love this guy. He's an amazing, amazing young man struggling with an addiction. I was explaining to him what the Bible said about believing in Jesus. And, and he said to me, he said, no, Mark, I don't really talk in spiritual terms. So let me see if I'm getting what you're saying here. He said, what I hear you saying is focus on the positive, don't be focused on the negative, and then try harder. And I said, actually, no. What I'm saying is, give up. And he goes, what? Give up and realize that you can't do it. How many times have you been here 
in this situation saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do better. I'm going to do whatever. He said, a lot of times, I said, you can't do it. You need to realize that. You need a new power on the inside. You're always going to fall short. You need that power on the inside that's bigger than you. You see, this believing, this receiving, this great exchange only happens as we become one with Jesus. It's like when a, a rich man marries a woman in deep debt. As husband and wife are formally, legally bound together, united, his great provisions cover her debt and she comes to enjoy the bounty of his resources. We talk about receiving Christ. We don't use that word a lot at Community of Faith, but you hear it out in the world a lot, you know, in the Christian world. Receive Christ, receive Christ. What does it mean to, to re receive Christ? What is this experience of receiving Christ really? Like the reason why we don't use it because it's so misused today. Here's what it really means. Receiving Christ means preferring Christ over all other persons and things. It means desiring him for who he is and wanting him in your life, not just for what he can do. See, we don't receive Christ savingly when, when we say, I, I just want a ticket out of hell to go to heaven. He's not a ticket. He's the treasure. He's the point. He's the reason. A lot of us, you know, we came to church because we said, I need something to happen in my marriage. Jesus, do something in my marriage. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But it's just the beginning. You see, you haven't received Christ savingly until you receive him for who he is, not what he can do. Jesus, I'm coming to you because I need you to heal me. You know what was so interesting about Jesus when he healed people? He would heal people and then he would tell them, shh, don't tell anybody. Did you notice that in the Bible? Have you read the, every time in the Bible, almost every single time he healed someone, he said, shh, don't tell anybody about that. And then they always would, you know, they couldn't help themselves. They would just run out and go, he healed me. And then you know what happened? Everybody would flock to him for more healing. But what do you, I think the reason, I used to say, why did you do that, Jesus? I mean, I don't understand that. But then it hit me one day, he did it because he didn't want them to get distracted. That's not the main thing. You know, it says when he raised Lazarus from the dead, Jesus wept. Now he wept because he loved Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters. They were close friends. Lazarus was a friend. He wept for our human condition that we have to die, that we have to say goodbye in death. But I think he also wept for another reason. I think he wept because he had to call Lazarus back to this old world, right? To this old place. He's going like, he's in a, he's in a whole other place. He's in a lot better place. Sorry, Lazarus, come forth, you know? And he knew he was doing it to show his power. He was doing it to show that he was the Christ. But you can't just come to, to, to Jesus to say, fix my marriage, heal me, overcome my addiction. You can start there, but that's not saving faith. 
it's helpful to understanding that saving faith means receiving, welcoming, embracing Jesus for all that he is, all that God is in him. Paul was talking in the book of Romans a little earlier than the verse that we read about falling short of the glory of God. And what he says is that means to exchange the glory of God for something else. Let me just read it to you out of Romans 1. I didn't put it down for you. Just listen. Although we knew God, we did not glorify him as God or give thanks to him, but we exchanged the glory of the immortal God for a pale image of glory in earthly things. See, God offers us the glory of his beauty and his strength and his generosity and his wisdom for our enjoyment, but we fall in love so often with the things that he made, not him. And he offers us up himself as our infinite treasure and we trade him for secondhand pleasure. The, the reason we need a savior is not because we've offended man's laws. It's because we have insulted God. See, when we compare ourselves to ourselves, it actually, it means nothing. But when we compare ourselves to the holy God, we all suddenly become like that shabby looking dog in the new fallen snow and we realize it doesn't matter how good I've tried to be. See, what is sin? Sin considers God and his glory and instead of loving God's glory and treasuring God's glory, sin exchanges God's glory for something else. That's what sin is. Sin has to do with God mainly. It's not mainly hurting other people, though that's involved. It does hurt other people, but it's mainly dishonoring God. It's belittling his glory. It's not trusting and treasuring him and not wanting him to be the foundation and the center of our lives. And this is a great guilt. God created the whole universe to display his glory. The sun, the moon, the stars. He spoke and he said it was good. He created us and he said it's good. But it didn't stay good because we fell into sin. And the, 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 the reason there's so much dysfunction and misery in the world is because the world is in rebellion from its very purpose. We are. And he gave us this world. He said, have dominion over it. And the ones in dominion over the world don't understand what that even means. So we're ruling a world and we're going in a direction that leads to destruction. All have sinned and are lacking the glory of God. We've traded it away. We've loved other things more. And so we've treated God and his glory like a, kind of like a, a, a periodic weekend hobby. You know, if, if everything is good and I'm not too tired from the night before, Texans aren't playing, if we got this going and that, then God, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be there for you. You know, I'll, I'll worship you, I'll make time for you. What the Bible says is we have this deep, unshakable, compelling preference for other things other than God. That's the bottom line. So what is sin? Sin is any feeling or thought or speech or action that comes from a heart that doesn't treasure God over all other things. And the root of all sin is 
our heart. A heart that prefers anything above God. A heart that does not treasure God above all other things. And Paul, in, in, in the book of Romans, he talks about sin reigning like a king in death in our lives. He talks about sin holding dominion like a lord over us. He talks about sin enslaving like a slave master. If you have ever struggled with an addiction, you know what I'm talking about. He talks about sin as a master to whom we've been sold, as a, a, a force that pr produces other sins, as a hostile occupying tenant that dwells deep down in our heart. And this powerful presence defines us until we receive Jesus, until we come to Jesus. So I want you to get out of your mind that sin is mainly what you do or don't do. Sin is not mainly what you do. It's mainly who you are. But sin is not an alien power. Sin is simply our preference for anything over God. And then it becomes this enslaving master. It's who we are at the bottom of our hearts until Christ. So can sinners do good works? Can sinners build hospitals? Can sinners keep the speed limit? Can sinners negotiate peace? Can sinners heal diseases? Can sinners feed the poor? Can sinners pay a fair wage? Yeah. Yeah. The answer is yes. But do those works please God? The answer is no. The writer of Hebrews in the Bible puts it like this. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. See, Paul had to undergo this massive reorientation of his mind. And this is what we have to have. When he came to Christ on the road to Damascus, Paul was the best man that anybody around him knew. He was the most godly, people would say. Man, he kept all of the Jewish laws. He hardly ever sinned in that way. He, he, he was always trying to do good. He was earning his way to God. That's what he was busy about. But when he came to God, suddenly he realized, this is not it. This is not even what it's about. I've totally misunderstood sin. I've totally misunderstood good. And when he came to Christ, he said, all these good things I've done, I mean, hundreds of thousands of them across my life as I've worked so hard to be morally good, it's all like dung. That's the word he used. It's all like dung. It's nothing to God. It stinks to God. And now I see that. Now I, I, I realize that. This was a whole new orientation. And so Paul says, whatever is not of faith is sin. That's crazy in a way that you could do something good and it's still sin. But that's because that's the bottom of our heart. It doesn't, we don't treasure God over all other things. That's what sin is. So that brings me to the next fake news. I want you to write this down. I found God. 
That's fake news. Some of you are going, no, no, I did. I found, I found God. No. Fake news. Listen to what the Bible says. God looks down from the heavens on the children of men to see if anyone understand who seeks after God. All have turned aside. Again, that word all. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. No, not even one. But here's the good news. Are you ready? The gospel truth again. God found me. God found me. I found God. No, God found me. It's so interesting because Jesus was preaching to a group of about 20, 30,000 people. And at the end of it, he had some, he could tell they were hungry, so he broke some loaves and some fish. And it's like just a few little fish, a few little loaves. And he, as he broke them, they kept multiplying and they kept multiplying and they kept multiplying. And he fed all 20,000 people with that. And the people said, this guy can make roadhouse rolls out of nothing. Let's make him king. And you can, you know, if you go to roadhouse, you, you know what I'm talking about. Let's make this guy king. And so by force, they're coming to make him king and Jesus rejects it. And his disciples are stunned. They're going like, this is what we've been waiting for. Dude, you know, I mean, Jesus, what are you thinking? You're going to be king. And then we're going to destroy the Romans. And then it's going to be this crazy thing. You will just call fire out of heaven, you know, and Caesar will just be ashes. It'll be cool. And Jesus said, no. And then he sends the disciples across the lake and he goes off by himself to pray, getting away from the people. And they're out in the middle of the lake and, and this storm comes up and they're fishermen and they're, you know, they're rowing. I mean, they're professionals in a pretty good sized boat, but this storm is just beyond any storm they've ever seen. And it's just swamping them and they think they're not gonna make it. And then about that time they see like this ghostly looking thing walking on the water and it's Jesus. And he gets in the boat and he says, peace, be still. And the water goes to glass. I mean, just glass. It's just like flat, no wind, not a single wave, not even a little ripple. And all the disciples are going like, who is this guy, you know? That's crazy. And then he gets to the other side and he begins to teach and they find him again. The crowd always finds him. And so here comes these 20, 30,000 people coming to him again and he knows they came to get more roadhouse rolls, you know? And, and so he says, listen, I know that you've come for that kind of bread, but I want to give you eternal bread. I am the bread of life. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And they're going like, what? That's gross. I mean, like, you talking vampire stuff or what is this? What's happening now, you know? And then he says, I'm talking spiritually. So that's what he's saying. Unless you receive me and come into union with me. When you eat something, you come into union with it, right? And he says, as long, when, we get, when we're together, we become like one. That's when it all changes. That's when everything changes. But they didn't get it. And then they kept saying, what are you talking about the bread? He goes, I'm the bread that came out of heaven. And then they just stopped. And they said, now we know you're a total nut. 
because I see your mother Mary and your dad Joseph right over there. You did not come out of heaven. You came out of their house. And here's what's interesting. Jesus, he, he doesn't argue his virgin birth, which he could have easily done. He, he doesn't make any of these. All he does, this master teacher, he says this because he knows the truth. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. He didn't even argue with them. He said, there's only one way you're coming to me and that is if my Father draws you, helkuo in the original, to drag. My Father drags you. Some of you are here and you don't know the truth. You've been dragged here and you go, I know, my wife dragged me here. I, was, I remember that. No, God dragged you here. God pulled you here. And as your mind is opening up to this, it's because he's been pulling and pulling. Some of you have been here time after time after time, but it takes time sometimes. God is so patient, he just pulls and he pulls and he pulls and he pulls. And then your mind opens. Now the Bible says be careful because he won't pull forever. If there comes this time where you say, I understand now, but I reject it, watch out. He doesn't always pull. You think, well, maybe next week. Well, maybe next year. No, he doesn't always keep pulling. And then it's easy to walk away. Then it's easy to say, not interested. Why does God need to draw us to salvation? Simply put, if he didn't, we would never come. Because in our natural state, we have no ability to come to God. We don't even have the desire to come to God. And, and, and he knows that. So listen as he goes on. He says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. I will raise him up on the last day. And then a little later he says, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Did you know that he knew Judas was there the whole time? And he was saying, for this reason I've come to you that no one can come, I'm, for this reason I said to you that no one can come to me unless it's been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples, were they really disciples? No. Withdrew and weren't walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? We see the humanity of Jesus in this. Can you imagine 20,000 people and then he's done, there's 12 left. Do you guys want to leave too? Simon Peter, obviously, as the fathers pulled him and pulled him, answered him, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. See, he got it. But that's because God pulled him. In another place, he said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, you didn't get this by yourself. This came from God. He pulled you into this. This came from the Father. He showed you this. This came from my spirit that has opened your eyes. Do you see it this morning? Do you know how much he loves you? I was thinking of my little granddaughter, Zoe, 
and how I just longed to always be with her, my little grandson Owen, and how I longed to, to, to be with him. And every chance I get, I want to be there. And when I'm away, and they, they FaceTime me, and they say, we wish you were here. We wish we were there in Texas swimming in your pool or whatever, you know? It's like, oh, God feels that a million times more for you. That's why he's pulling. Jesus said, wouldn't every single one of you, if you had 100 sheep and you lose one, leave the 99 in their grazing lands and, and go out searching for the lost sheep until you find it? And when you find the lost sheep, wouldn't you hoist it up on your shoulders? Feeling wonderful. And when you go home, wouldn't you call together your friends and neighbors and wouldn't you say, come over and celebrate with me because I found my lost sheep. This is how it is in heaven. In the other gospel that talks about this, he says, that one sheep that wandered away, that's you. And, and, and he says, I'll, I'll leave everything else and I'll come and find you. Wherever you are, I'll come down those places in your life. I, I know how far you've fallen. I know where you are and I will come and I will find you and I'll put you on my shoulders like a little lamb. You're my little son. You're my little daughter. It'll be like, you know, when your little son rides on your shoulders and he's so tall and you go back home and you say, look, I found the lost one and the angels go crazy. That's what it is when you come to him. Last night, I, I got to see people singing this last song that we're gonna sing together. And there are some little girls a few rows back. And I knew they came out of our home, Hope Rising, where they've been pulled out of some of the worst circumstances you can ever imagine, out of sex, sexual trafficking. And they're just holding their hands up to Jesus. And they're singing the song. And I was thinking... He went wherever he needed to go so he could get those little girls and put them on his shoulders and take them home. But here's the truth. He's done that for you too. Maybe you're the most moral person anybody knows. But you realize now that's not what it's about like Paul. That's not what it's about. He's come for you. If you understand what I'm talking about right now, he's come for you. I want us to close by singing a song by Corey Asbury. And it's one of our favorite ones here. I know you love it. It's called Reckless Love. There's no shadow, Jesus, you won't light up. No mountain you won't climb up coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down. Lie you won't tear down coming after me. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99 and I couldn't earn it I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. In the book of Revelation 22, the last chapter of the book, the whole Bible, Jesus says, let him or her who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Would you come to Jesus right where you are in your seat, as we sing this song, you can step into this life. Just simply say, like my friend this week when we talked, 
Jesus, I want you for you. I receive you. I, 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 I can't do this without you. I will always fall short. Be my everything.